We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings independent and interesting STEM, science, technology, engineering and maths content. The show is supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. My name is Kate Johnson, and today I'm joined by Joseph Seiler and Dr. Lila Fletcher from Yale University, and I'm coming to you from the United States of America. I'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which our show is based, the Palawa and Pekana people of Lutruita. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which I'm living and recording, the Quinnipiac people of the Atlantic shoreline of Connecticut. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. Today we're going to talk to two of the researchers I've been working alongside here in the US at Yale University about their journeys into science and their research. We'll also have a two-way exchange of questions around US and Australian culture. So enjoy. I'm joined today by Joseph, and just to give you a bit of context, we're sitting in the garden that surrounds our labs in New Haven. Um, it's about 30 degrees Celsius, so I don't know about Joseph, but I'm too hot. <laughs> um, but I realise I shouldn't be complaining because you're, if you're listening in Australia, it's winter and you're probably a bit cold. Um, but I'm going to try and not get distracted during this interview because Joseph and I have just seen two groundhogs and um, they're really cute. I'm going to try not to yell out, there's a groundhog. <laughs> anyway, so like I said, I'm joined by Joseph Zyler. Joseph is a PhD student in plant science and a member of the research group that I'm visiting at Yale University. Um, he's been very welcoming, um, as has everyone in this group to me, as I've arrived here in the US, and it's really nice to be speaking with him today. Um, so, Joseph, I will ask about your research in a minute, but first of all, could you tell us a little bit about how you got into science? Sure. Thanks, Kate. I've always really enjoyed um, science in general. I feel like my growing up, my favorite subjects were both uh, biology and physics, I would say. Um, and it's interesting because my work now kind of combines both, but um, we'll touch on that in a little bit. Um, and yeah, so growing up, um, given that I was really into biology and being from a Middle Eastern family, my parents wanted me to become a doctor. <laughs> and uh, I, I easily faint at the sight of blood <laughs> or any injury. So I don't think I would have been a good doctor, to be honest. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing uh, in my undergrad. Uh, I majored in general biology. And I was just kind of floating around trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do something related to like science, be a researcher. I volunteered in an immunology lab during my undergrad, which was really interesting, but I didn't find myself very passionate about it. Um, so yeah, uh, I've just always loved nature and the outdoors and animals and trees and plants and all of that. So after I graduated, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and somehow ended up in a lab that does plant biology and I just fell in love with it and I think that's kind of what led me to where I'm at today. So, 
And you are going to be a doctor. That's true. <laughs> Just a different sort a different of doctor. Kind of doctor yeah. <laughs> um, so could you tell us a bit about your research? What, what is it that you, you're studying for your PhD? Yeah, so I uh, consider myself a plant physiologist, so I'm very interested in how plants function. Um, particularly, I'm interested in their hydraulic systems, so how they move water, um, how they exchange water for CO2 during photosynthesis with the atmosphere. Um, and I'm also interested in how that the whole hydraulic system in plants uh, dysfunctions when they undergo a period of drought stress or heat stress. Uh, being from Mediterranean regions, being from Lebanon, living in California for 10 years, it just kind of made, made sense for me to study drought um, <laughs> and with climate change, of course. So you said you lived in California for 10 years, and so California's on the, the west coast of the US, and now we're on the east coast. So how, could you tell us a little bit about how they differ, how you found the move from California to the, to the east coast? So I moved here during the pandemic. Um, everything was locked down. I spent months and months in my apartment when I first moved out here. Uh, so I'm lucky enough to now experience a little bit more of the East Coast culture. Um, the When I first moved out here, like I said, I was just in my apartment. The first thing that stood out to me was all the snow, which I was not <laughs> used to. Um, and uh, I, that, that was definitely an adjustment. I like it now. I wouldn't say I love it, but, you know, I can, I can live with it. <laughs> I also don't like the extreme heat of California in the summer either. So, you know, there's ups and downs to, to both, uh, both regions. Um, culturally, it's kind of hard to kind of make that distinction. I feel like now I live in somewhat of this Yale bubble where everyone that I interact with is for the most part, a student here at a university. I live in a college town. I didn't, I hadn't lived in a college town since maybe 2016 when I graduated from my undergrad. Uh, so it's interesting to come back to that lifestyle. The student lifestyle is so much different than, I don't know, the living with family and just being out in the quote unquote real world, you know, compared to being in this bubble. The California vibe is somewhat unique in some ways. <laughs> um, if you watch TV, I'm sure you've, <laughs> you've seen the, you know, how, how it's portrayed. And for the most part, you know, there's, yeah, the, like the surfer dudes and the, you know, the beach <laughs> vibes and the chill Cali, like, um, yeah, those kind of vibes. That's, that's very different than what I've experienced here. But um, I love both. Switching topics off academia and uni for a minute, um, I want to ask you about Australia. I want to ask you what comes to mind when you think of Australia? What, what to you is quintessentially Australian? Okay, so I will preface this by saying I've never been to Australia before. Certain things pop into mind when I think of Australia, namely um, kangaroos. <laughs> Uh, big spiders, a lot of different animals that I would really love to see someday. Some might be a little scary. <laughs> um, I also find 
find it interesting that it's uh, summertime when Christmas happens. So <laughs> I have I have some distant cousins in Australia, and they celebrate Christmas on the beach, which is you know it's really different. <laughs> and amazing. yeah, that, I mean that's uh, that's awesome. I just I just find that like it's a stark contrast with like a wintry Christmas in the you know northern hemisphere. Um, and yeah, I also to to draw some similarities similarities with California. I also imagine you know a lot of like surfer dudes and barbecues and <laughs> drinking and just all the fun stuff you know that we also like to enjoy in California and I'm sure in uh, in many places around the world. But I think those are the you know when I when I think of Australia, that's those are the first things that pop into my head. Yeah, no, what you're saying about the, the parallels with California, I think you're right. I think there are some big parallels. And also, all my knowledge of the US and before I came here was also from TV. So yeah. that's it's a, <laughs> it's a legitimate yeah. source of yeah. information. <laughs> I find, you know, you learn about a place from somewhere like TV or the media, then you go there and some of the things you're like, yep, that's right. And some of the things you're like, okay, no, nope, that's just in the movies. Joseph, is there anything um, you'd like to ask me? about Australia or the US or anything before you finish up? It's somewhat of a vague question, but I'm kind of curious, um, talking about cultures, like when you moved out here for your current position, was there, did you experience any uh, cultural shock in any way? And like, how would you describe maybe something that's very different between American and Australian culture that struck you like when you moved out here and you had to adjust to it? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think I I tried to come over here with a, a really open mind because I, like we were just talking about, I'm aware that my opinions of the US are completely from the media, which is, you know not how people live yeah. <laughs> like you know movie stars or characters it's not it's not normal people um so i, I definitely did I, I definitely was shocked by some things when i came over here um but i'm just going to start with saying that i was really pleasantly surprised at how friendly everyone is here here in in new haven especially in Craig's lab, you know, all of you, because Australia has often um, got, a, got a bit of a reputation for being very friendly, you know, very friendly, relaxed yeah. people, and I didn't know really what to expect coming over here, and it was a very pleasant surprise that I feel like people are just as friendly in, in this area as, um, as they are back home, which was really nice. Um, the things that did shock me were um, the general volume of things. So... <laughs> So restaurants, people pumping music out of their cars or out of speakers on their bikes or speakers that they're holding as they're walking along, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the the general volume, I sort of was, and people kind of shouting and I thought that it was kind of an angry shout, but it's just a kind of like getting people's attention or even having a conversation over like a big area sort of shout, yeah, you know, yeah. so when I hear shouting, we're generally we're generally quite polite and relatively quiet, I'd yeah. say, um, at least in the areas that I'm from. 
So when I hear people shouting, I immediately go angry. They must be angry, yeah. but they're not. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just like, <laughs> so I think, I think the volume was <laughs> like a bit of a shock to me. I think that's, that's probably the first thing that comes to mind. Thanks so much, Joseph, for being on the show. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Kate. Hello and welcome to That's What I Call Science. I'm Kate Johnson and I'm still sitting on this bench seat in the garden but now um, I've got Lila next to me. So our guest for the second half of the episode is Dr Lila Fletcher. She's also a plant scientist in the group that I'm visiting um, at Yale. And Lila, I'd like to start by asking you how you got into science. Yeah, thank you for that introduction. And I didn't initially know that I wanted to go into science. Um, I had always been around nature in a way growing up in that my mom worked at a local nature center. Uh, so that was always part of my life. But my dad was an artist and I also really enjoyed art. So when I went to college, I knew that I liked both of those things, but I wasn't sure what I wanted my career to be. So I ended up majoring in art history, visual arts, and biology. Uh, but in my second year of college, one of my, I took a very small plant biology class called Plant Evolution and Diversity, and there were only eight students. And the professor ended up inviting me to work in her lab. And that's how I basically ended up following this whole career of plant biology. So... Yeah, that's really how I started. And then she inspired me to do an internship uh, in Dr. Lauren Sachs' lab at UCLA toward the end of my undergrad career. And then after that, I ended up doing my PhD in Lauren's lab. And that's the rest is history, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's so great. Um, The fact that you're into arts and sciences, that's also very close to my heart. I'm also very into arts and sciences being friends and (laughs) the fact that they both benefit each other so much. The fact that you study art and science is really um, interesting to me. Very recently, you did a cover for a journal. So can you just maybe explain to us, um, because our audience is quite general, um, not necessarily all in scientific research, what that means, what what a cover for a journal means and what you actually did. Oh, sure. Uh, Well, basically every journals used to be published only in physical hard copies before the internet. (laughs) So uh, then, you know, it's like any magazine would be printed with something on the cover. Uh, And now journals, I I guess you could still get the hard copy, although I don't think I've seen one in (laughs) quite a while. (laughs) Uh, But generally they're they're published online and then the cover illustration is used more in like social media and on their website just as a promotional image for whatever articles they want to feature. So yeah, just like any other magazine, except uh, it's probably mostly used for digital advertising purposes at this point. So, so what did you do? What was the process? Um, did you, how did you get approached to do this? Then what was the actual process of making the artwork and getting it um, published as the cover of the journal? Yeah, well, I, I try to make it known <laughs> to my friends and many people that I still like art and that's still like what I only posts on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, So I had a friend who's a postdoc at UCLA, Dr. Ted Schmidt, and he's in uh, uh, 
immunology <laughs> and he so he studies something completely different from me but he knew that I liked art and I'm also a scientist and so he he got an article published in Nature Aging uh, and then the journal invited him to do a cover but he is not necessarily an artist so he reached out to me and asked if I'd be interested in helping with the cover and so basically he just gave me a list of things that would be interesting to see on the cover so um, he works with Drosophila which is like a fly and then asked if I could somehow combine that into some kind of elegant concept uh, so that's basically what I tried to do and and drew out a couple different sketches of ideas and they chose one that they liked and then um, we sent it to the journal who said we like this general idea now we'd need a more finished version then they published that online that's so exciting, and congratulations, Lila. That's a that's really cool. Um, was it it nice to to have your your science and your art sort of put together? Does that happen often? Yeah, I really think they're very intertwined, and uh, this whole separation of the two like doesn't really make sense. Um, but that being said, it is very rare for people. Whenever I say I like those two things, people are often like, "Well, those are so different. Like, you know, how can you do both of those things?" And yeah, which I think is sort of funny. <laughs> but, but I do look for opportunities to combine those things whenever I can. Um, and I think any artist would say the same, that you need to have some, uh, like if you're drawing figures, for example, you need to have some understanding of anatomy. And um, so, yeah, I think they both help each other. And there's always connections between any field that people are interested in. You just got to, like, find them. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. I think separating them <laughs> is just does a disservice to both. Because yeah. you, you can't take the art of the science or the science out of art. Going back onto what you do now in um, the science field, which is obviously there's art too, but what is your research? Could you tell us briefly what your, what your research area is at the moment in your position here? Sure. Uh, well, I was initially, during my PhD, really interested in um, diversity in some native shrubs in California and like you know why are some lineages so diverse and others not and how does that contribute to how or how does the way they tolerate the environmental stress potentially contribute to that um, but I sort of switched back then to my first love of Arabidopsis I guess I should say Arabidopsis thaliana is a very small basically weed uh, the common name is Thalecress, and it's found all over a very large region of the world in Europe, Asia, North Africa, and North America. So it really grows everywhere but has no real use for humans generally, except that it's become a very popular plant for scientific research. So it's like the lab rat or, <laughs> of plant uh, science. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, so people use it because it grows really fast. It can do its whole life cycle in like six weeks, and it's very small, and there's a lot of genetic information available for it. So um, I went back to studying Arabidopsis because I was interested in how some of the like, diversity that we see at very large scales, um, I kind of wanted to see if the same 
patterns that we find across broad scales and diverse species were also found when we look within a species at different populations. So that's what I started looking at in Arabidopsis, like how do you, um, is there drought tolerance even within a lineage? Does it follow the same patterns that we might find across diverse species? Um, and then from there, uh, I became interested in even a smaller scale, which is like even looking, you know, across a single leaf, um, what kind of diversity is there? So uh, is there variation in the structure even within a single leaf and how might that affect physiological processes? And so that's basically what I'm doing now. Um, I'm a postdoc in Craig Broderson's lab at Yale and I am looking at uh, some anatomical variation within leaves of Arabidopsis and we're also working on a broader project of trying to see how changes in the structure of the cells inside leaves can affect photosynthetic rates and potentially affect growth and um, water use and things like that. Now we're going to deviate topics, go off science and more into Australia and the US and how they differ and what you think of Australia. In terms of culturally, just anything that, again, any information that you've had about Australia compared to your experience living in the US. How do you think the US and Australia might differ? Um, well, first of all, everything is upside down in Australia, so that's <laughs> one of uh, No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, I think one of the main things is that we've discussed quite a bit is like some of the language is, is different. Um, like, also spelling, I think, we haven't talked about that too much, but I think you spell some words differently, like license. Is there an S in license for you, or is it all C's? I'm not a great speller. But I know that... Um, Colour. Color. Yep, we, we, we have OUs, where you often have just the O. Yeah. Yeah, I lived in Canada for a little bit, so I have like some familiarity, some familiarity with the extra U's. But uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd say the spelling and also then all of these uh, shortened versions of words <laughs> that we've talked about a bit. Uh, like, um, wait, hold on, don't tell me. <laughs> Whoa, the sunglasses that you call the sunnies, <laughs> and um, the stuffed animals that are stuffies. <laughs> No, no, they're not. They're teddies. That's one that you've made up. <laughs> I didn't make that up. Teddies. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to shorten everything and say it's Australian. <laughs> oh, and the, the gas station, the servo, that's kind of, that's not even a shortened one. That's just different. Uh, I feel like there's another one that I'm forgetting. You're becoming quite fluent in Australian slang. <laughs> I'm pretty <Sure>. impressed. <laughs> it's basically learning a new language, right? <laughs> so, Lila, is there anything you'd like to ask me before we round off the interview about, I don't know, anything? For uh, In the US, I, in recent years, I feel like there's been a big push to fund the sciences, so uh, what we call STEM fields. And I was wondering if the same thing is going on in Australia and how science funding works there, if it's readily available, and so on. Um, it's a good question, Lila. And I am quite new to research, so my, um, my answer might not wholly be representative of what actually happens. But I have noticed here, um, I guess especially at this university in Craig's lab, 
um, it's very well funded. And you have the National Science Foundation here, which people um, even at the postgraduate um, like PhD career stage talk about getting grants through the National Science Foundation. I say we don't have a body like that that gives out grants as readily. Um, I think that there is more sort of national level funding here. We have we definitely have little grants um, sort of that are quite field specific. Less here's a grant for like general science funding and more if you study the conservation of this species you can apply for this grant that's been given by someone who's passionate about it um, as a gift. Yeah, so I think that here there is more access to funding in in some ways, in the way that it's at a, at a national level. Um, that's from a kind of student, early career researcher perspective. There, the Australian Research Council give out bigger grants. Um, they're generally, you know, like three years to start, start your own lab or if you're higher up as a senior academic, you know, things like discovery grants um, and centres of excellence, um, which can be quite a lot of money. So there's still funding there, but I say it's very competitive and, yeah, yeah. I will just add to what you said because you're visiting Yale University, which is sort of <laughs> one of the... <laughs> premier institutions in the U.S. and maybe in the world. Um, like, And so I do think I came from UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, which is also a very large and I think fairly well-known school, but it's um, a public institution, whereas Yale University is private. And uh, there is, I would say, a difference in funding um, in the U.S. between the private and the public schools and that private schools, especially ones like Yale, tend to get much more funding from donors, and so the institution itself offers a lot more support than a school like UCLA that's funded through tax dollars, and so it's sort of limited in uh, how much money they give. But, but yes, we do have those large funding agencies like the National Science Foundation and National Institutes of Health and things that fund quite a bit of, or probably most labs have some sort of funding coming from there yeah <laughs> and uh, yeah you're right what I know is going to be very skewed by the institutions that I'm at and I am at <laughs> we are at a, <laughs> a large institution but yeah I I find that really nice that idea of um, science research being nationally funded and I'm not saying that it's not in Australia I just think at the moment um, it's a lot more available here yeah well, thank you very much, Lila. It was such a pleasure to have you on the show. <laughs> thank you for hosting me. Thank you for listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you science-related content and we hope you enjoyed the show. I'd like to once again thank today's guests, Joseph Seiler and Dr. Lila Fletcher. If you like this episode, you can get in touch with us by searching That's What I Call Science or That's Science Taz on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, or visiting our website at thatscience.org. See you next time. Want to know more about science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine? Then tune in to Edge Radio at 5pm on Sundays to hear That's What I Call Science. You can also find us on all of your favourite podcast streaming services. Be sure to like and subscribe us on any of our socials. 
At That's What I Call Science, we love bringing engaging content to all sorts of audiences, and this includes youth. So if you're a teacher at a local school here in Tasmania and have students interested in science, technology, engineering, maths or medicine topics, then let us know and we can come into your school and get them on the radio talking about their favourite exciting scientific ideas.